Okay, can you just start by saying your name and your position? So I'm Marian Knight and I'm Professor of Maternal and Child Population Health in the Nuffield Department of Population Health. Lovely, thank you. And um, without telling me your entire life story, can you just take me through the key steps in your career um, to date? And, and I mean, starting with how you got interested in uh, science and medicine at all. So uh, I, I'm medically trained and I started with an interest in, in pregnancy. So initially uh, uh, moved into training as an obstetrician. I did a PhD at that point, a DPhil in the university, and realised that actually research for me, so I did lab-based research then, but that, that wasn't close enough to making a difference to patients for me. So I, so yeah, working in the lab wasn't close enough. Or the, the research didn't lead to a change for, for patients quick enough for me. Um, whereas I got some exposure to, to epidemiological research um, and clinical trials. So realised that actually I wanted to get that epidemiology training and the route to do that was through training in public health. So what are the epidemiological questions in terms of maternal and, and neonatal health? What was, I mean, I think what I'm, what was the big question that really drove you to go So, So my, my research in the lab was around um, understanding the, the causes, the basic causes of preeclampsia. But actually, you know, that, that's something that happens quite a long time before the poor outcomes. You know, we still lose mums, we still lose babies from preeclampsia because of the treatment they need around the time of, you know, around the end of pregnancy, around the time of giving birth. So just so, to fill in quickly, what is preeclampsia? So preeclampsia is high blood pressure in, in pregnancy. So um, actually, when, when you're talking on a global basis, still one of the leading causes that, that we, we lose mums and babies. Um, and, and yet, you know, what, what we need to know is, well, what do we need to treat them with at the time we've made the diagnosis? as opposed to my lab work, which was almost at the how do we prevent this stage. And to, to, to find out how to treat them, we need um, observational studies where we just look at um, what women are being treated with and who seems to do better, but also clinical trials. Um, and through a very big clinical trial that was done around about the time that I was doing my PhD, not by me, um, we found that aspirin, Simple aspirin was good at, at preventing baby deaths in, in women with preeclampsia. So seeing the power of that was what really drove me um, into public health. The, the added appeal uh, of public health for me is that I can see that actually many things are driven by uh, inequalities, by you know, much more wider determinants of health. You, people will be familiar with, you know, things are much worse if you live in a deprived area, if you're, you're less educated, if you are um, unemployed, all of which relates to wider determinants of health. Um, and, and the advantage of, of working through public health is that, that I'm able to think about those wider prevention uh, elements as well. So it's for me a big, a big motivator to, to be able to link the two together and, and make a more immediate difference to, to preventing illness, severe illness and death in, in pregnant women and their babies. So has that led, I interrupted you as you were going through your career <laughs> steps, did, did, uh, have you, you stayed in Oxford ever since? Uh, not intentionally, but yes, um, uh, I have stayed in Oxford ever since. Um, well, I, as I say, I was, I was doing my uh, DPhil here and then went back into training in obstetrics, but um, realised I wanted to move into public health. And the huge advantage in Oxford is that we have the unit where I am now, which is, is the National Perinatal Epidemiology Unit, which does exactly the kind of research that I, I knew I was interested in. And an added benefit was that while training as a registrar in public health, I was able to come here to do some of my training. So um, because that was in Oxford and there's no other place like it, it, it was the reason to stay in Oxford. So, um, and, uh, and I've never left. So, um. <laughs> so you've talked about preeclampsia and you've talked about some of the social factors. Um, what, is it possible to put a figure on 
how risky pregnancy and birth are today for a woman in the UK? Sorry, that's a terribly broad question and depends on loads and loads of different things, but how, well, how well, serious the problem so, is it? So, so I can give you exact answers to that. So part of one of my uh, current roles that I've been doing for about 10 years now is that I lead the national investigations into all maternal deaths during pregnancy or up to a year after the end of pregnancy. This is the UK obstetric the surveillance? UK, uh, no, no? This, this is, this is um, uh, the, what is called the confidential inquiries into maternal deaths. Oh, so, right. Mm. Um, allied to, but not the same as the UK obstetric surveillance system. So that, that the, the, the confidential inquiries is a programme that's been going for 70 years in, in the UK, investigating maternal deaths. So every time um, a mother dies in pregnancy so or shortly after? Every time a mother dies in pregnancy or shortly after, um, we find out about it and then investigate her care to identify ways of improving care to prevent women from dying in the future. Um, so on the basis of that, um, I can give you exact numbers, uh, uh, around about one in every 10,000 women giving birth will die either during pregnancy or up to six weeks after the end of pregnancy. So it's not common. Um, sadly for babies, that's, that's much more common. So uh, about five in every thousand babies um, who are born either die, uh, either, uh, are either stillborn or die in the neonatal period, so die in the first month of life. Um, so, I mean, in summary, pregnancy is very safe in the UK, but then there are a lot of women who have severe complications, what we often talk about as near misses, or what I really like the South African um, uh, uh, system, we call them the great saves. Um, so with my other hat on, which you started to introduce, I uh, set up the UK obstetric surveillance system to look at those severe complications in pregnancy. Um, because they're severe, they're relatively uncommon, so it's not something as a, as a clinician working in, in a hospital you would see on a day-to-day -day basis. Probably it's the kind of thing you might see once a year for the rarer complications, maybe once in your lifetime. So it's very difficult to build up that, the, the knowledge to know how we treat women. As an individual. As an individual clinician, yes, exactly. Yes, yes. But because we collect information on a national basis from all the hospitals with maternity units, we can bring all that together to then um, provide information on how women can, uh, on how we should be managing these women with these complications. Mm. Well, can you give a couple of examples of the kinds of complications that you're talking about? Uh, so um, one of the complications, for example, is um, uh, so sometimes the, pl the placenta can grow deeper into the womb than normal. It's a condition called placenta accreta or abnormally invasive placenta, placenta accreta spectrum. Um, often associated with having had a previous caesarean birth. So as you can imagine, we've got higher caesarean birth rates now. So um, the rates of placenta accreta are increasing. But a simple question is, well, if I, if I know that, that this woman I'm caring for has got this condition, how do I, how do I deliver her baby? And then what do I do uh, about the placenta? because the, the risk to her is, a very, is very severe bleeding. And so by collecting that information nationally, we can show, or we did show, that the best thing to do is, is leave the placenta alone. Don't touch the placenta, don't try and remove the placenta, and then um, go straight to actually to a hysterectomy, for, for, which obviously sadly means that woman will no longer be fertile, but she will be alive. And so will her um, baby, and probably. So, and so will her baby, mm. yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So, um, yeah, but, we, but obviously we can't, if, if, we're, if we're only managing two or most three women like that every year as an individual clinician, we won't have all of the information to be able to, to look at that difference. Mm. And we're going to get on to COVID, but what about infectious disease? What about things like flu? 
um, what what data was there available on how that affected pregnancy? Um, so a very pertinent question and we'll come on to COVID. So um, because we had this national system when the, the swine flu pandemic came along, which I think is a distant memory for most people. Was that 2009 was it? 2009, yes, yeah, yes. that's right. Um, one, one of the questions was, well, was this going to, did this affect pregnant women more than it affected, affected non-pregnant women? Um, so we were able to collect information very rapidly through the obstetric surveillance system. Although I would say n not as rapidly as, as we would have, um, would have wanted because um, you, it, the pandemic hit in, in, I think it was about April 2009. So there was a small wave of flu infection sort of over the summer in the UK but relatively small. Um, we, we, because we hadn't planned the study at that point, we didn't collect data during that wave, come back to that on COVID. Um, whereas we, we were able to collect it in the winter wave, which was much bigger in the UK. Um, and we were able to show that, that women who got treated with antivirals within two days of their symptoms starting had about a 90% lower uh, risk of needing intensive care. So, uh, uh, and at that time, the uh, the guidance, again, I don't know if you remember, but there was a phone line that you could phone up to get antivirals, uh, Tamiflu, I think it was. Um, now, I, I won't go into the, uh, the, the subsequent um, uh, research around Tamiflu, but um, if you were not pregnant, you could phone up that line and you could just go and collect it. Um, you didn't have to go to your doctor. But if you were pregnant, you had to go to your doctor. So it, there, was, there were more barriers to actually getting treated when you were pregnant. So obviously by having that information to say, well, actually it's even more important that pregnant women get treated quickly, it means you're then thinking, well, at a system level, right, we've got to remove these barriers. So actually the, the barriers were removed so that women, pregnant women were able to get uh, antivirals through the phone helpline. And, and were they more vulnerable? Is pregnancy, does that increase your vulnerability to uh, severe disease? It, it does, so yeah. it increases your vulnerability to severe flu. So, so um, yeah, there were, there were um, pregnant women who were having to go on heart-lung bypass machines because of the severity of their flu. Um, so yes, it, it, it undoubtedly makes your flu um, more severe and and you know the, it, it, that's an interesting question that we never quite know so there are some infections which whether you're pregnant or not it's no difference in the severity and there are others where we know that pregnant women are more severely affected and that's a question that we will always need to answer if a new infection comes along um, uh, and and yet surprisingly not recognise that we will always need to answer that question. Um, so, so yeah, very pertinent when it comes to COVID. Well, I think we have come to COVID. I think that, that was a very good um, background introduction. So um, I'm asking everybody this, can you remember when you first became aware that um, something was going on in China and that actually it looked as if it was going to become a global pandemic? Uh, so I can't remember whether it was the end of December or beginning of January. Um, I, I became aware because there's a within the within the department. There's quite a lot of work goes on with with China, and they actually have a, a, a large birth cohort. And in fact, the year before, in fact, actually it might even have been December. It was December 2019. I had been over to visit the uh, Guangzhou in China, where they have this. Uh, large birth cohort, um, uh, which they re recruit pregnant women. Um, they have some blood tests, and then they follow up them and their babies. Um, and when the, the 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 COVID concern came up, as it was, as it was, actually we thought, well, this this cohort is a, it would be a great way of, of of finding out whether it's adversely affecting pregnant women or not. So. We actually applied for, for, for a grant to, to do that study there. It wasn't successful, but in actual fact was rapidly overtaken by events and sadly because the, we had many, many more um, inf 
infections here, difference in public health control measures, uh, actually collecting data in the UK became very much more pertinent. And, and so, yes, so my second part of that question is usually when, when did you realise that this was something that you were going to have to get involved with, but it sounded like well, a Well, I'm going to take you back to flu, yes. um, because what, what was brilliant, I think, about um, the UK, I mean, we have, to be, we have to be positive about the bits that were positive. So after the experience of the swine flu pandemic, where we recognised that there were, quite, there were a number of research studies that would need to be done in the event of another pandemic. Actually, the, the National Institute for Health Research, as it was then, NIHR, uh, put out a call for studies to be set up and then what it called hibernated, ready for a, a future pandemic. So in, in 2011, I applied for one of those, which we, we were successful, we were uh, funded in 2012. So I had a, a hibernated, what, we, what was, we thought would be for another pandemic, flu pandemic, I had a hibernated study set up, ready to run through the UK obstetric surveillance system. That's the first system. time I've heard about hibernated studies, that's oh, very okay. interesting. Yeah. So I think there's nine, there were nine hibernated studies on the portfolio, of, of which I think eight were activated. Um, and and, and what, why it's important is because because I had everything ready to go. We tested it um, twice along the, along the way, so effectively we knew things were still, still right. It meant that I was very quickly able to adapt it to, uh, to COVID in February, get the, get the ethics permissions, so that it meant that on March the 18th, when I was asked to activate it, um, I was able to get things going on March the 22nd. So you'll hear all about the nine days of the nine days of, um, of recovery from from start to uh, activating. But we were even quicker. Although <laughs> to be fair, we had been funded nine years beforehand. Mm, mm. So uh, and and for me that that's. I, I guess one of my concerns is that I, I think those portfolio studies were really successful. Um, why are we not getting ready now for when we need those again? Mm. Um, mm. And, and, what, and what did the study actually do? Uh, so um, I, I talked to you about the UK obstetric surveillance system. So yes. we have uh, hospitals in uh, every maternity unit in the country participates and so um, we used UCOS, the UK Obstetric Surveillance System, to collect information about all pregnant women with uh, COVID who were hospitalised. Um, we anticipated we'd have a study of 500. Um, we got to 20,000 oh. by the time we stopped. Um, and, and obviously was a, a huge, hugely down to the efforts of clinicians in all of the hospitals, but particularly the, uh, the network of research midwives who were also pivoted to help with that, and, um, and, and they were absolutely amazing. Um, but, uh, so I was doing that, so I have two staff and myself, and so I, would, I was analysing those data on a weekly basis for the for the Royal Colleges to inform their guidance, but also for the Departments of Health, um, so that so that we a we could see um, what was happening to numbers, but importantly those questions about well, if I get it, what happens to my baby? Um, is it worse for pregnant women? Which pregnant women is it worse for? And you know, again, linking back to me and my public health background, um, in that the. So we did a first analysis um, that we released at the end uh, of May, uh, uh, slightly earlier, obviously, to, to uh, NHS England and Department of Health, which showed that 56% of women admitted with COVID in pregnancy were from ethnic minority groups. That's on a background of normally about eight, about 18% of the population of, of pregnant women as a whole are from ethnic minority groups. So clearly, uh, that that group were particularly at very high risk of, of severe outcomes. 
and um, the, there was an, an instant response from, from NHS England and a number of hospitals who put in place different actions to, um, to ensure um, a, a lower threshold of, of, of concern over uh, women from black and ethnic minority groups. Um, some did some, some brilliant daily telephone calls to, so, because obviously we were, we were being told to, to stay at home and, and, um, and isolate if, we, if we'd got an infection. But they were, so that then there's a concern that you stay at home too long and you're too sick before you come in. So some hospitals were then instituting daily phone calls to, to, to check in with women so that they knew that they could advise them to come in early. So, so some really, really good responses by having the direct communication through um, with, as I say, with, with the, the, the colleges, but also with the um, uh, NHS and, and Department of Health. Uh, so, you know, as a researcher, uh, incredibly satisfying is the wrong word, but, but you know, you, you feel that, that actually your skills, what you're doing is really making a difference. And going back to the beginning of this conversation where, you know, that, that is why I didn't carry on with lab research. It was, it was to enable this kind of research. Um, and then we've, we, we carried on, obviously, collecting information as because then the next question are, well, we've now got a new variant. Have things changed? Um, what is the impact of vaccination? Um, and we, we showed that the, the Delta variant was very, very much worse for, for pregnant women. Um, Omicron looks much similar to, to the first variant as it was the wild type. Um, what was sad, and, and this is where I, I still get cross, um, frustrated, cross, cross is a, a mild word for it. Um, uh, pregnant women were excluded from all the initial vir uh, vaccine trials. Mm. Yeah, I had a question about that. Let's, let's just explore okay. that in a bit more yep. detail. So, um, Yeah, so I've got a whole series. Okay. It's a question of how they, how where, they fit where, together. Where you what order you... But, but yes, yeah, so let's just go back, at, you know, a bit of background to when people do trials of new kinds of treatments, yeah. how common is it for pregnant women to be included? Uh, very rare. Yeah, and the so reason for that is... So the, the default is always exclusion. Um, because of fear of damaging the baby. Because of fear of damaging the baby. Yes. So, so f um, it, it is. It is a. So, if you're a if you're a pharmaceutical company, um, why would you include pregnant women in your research? It's it's risky. It, it, it means you are putting yourself theoretically. You might be putting yourself at risk. It'll be a much more bigger insurance. Um, it's a small market, it, you know, there, there is no motivation to include pregnant women in, in, your, in your trial, even if um, it is clearly a, a disease that affects pregnant women as well as others. Uh, the potential for benefit for pregnant women is as great, if not greater, than, than for others. And in many cases, there are similar drugs, or the drugs have been used in pregnancy um, in, 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 in previous times. So you've got, you've got evidence to suggest that there's not going to be a problem in pregnancy. But that benefit, I'm, I, I, I always now talk about benefits before risks. So that benefit-risk analysis is never done. And there is not, there's no, um, there's no incentive from regulators. So there's no, um, you know, it's not, it's not linked to your licensing approvals that you need to make sure that you're including pregnant women or at least justify why you're excluding them. But even more basic is that there's no real requirement to do, to collect that information afterwards when we are using the, the medications in, in pregnant women because 
what happens is that that, that obstetricians and, and other doctors, uh, you know, physicians, end up having to use medications in pregnancy because their assessment is this is an ill woman. I need to, this is this is going to be of benefit. You know, the, I'm I'm doing the the estimation in my head, and I think there is much greater potential for benefit than there is for any potential for harm. So they're having to do that on a daily basis and, and recommend to women that, that they take drugs. But even then, we've got no um, robust system for collecting the information about when those drugs are used and, and what happens to pregnant women, which, you know, a bit akin to what we do in the UK obstetric surveillance system, could give us a, a, at least information uh, for, for women to be able to base decisions on in the future. So going back to the COVID vaccine, I mean, as we all know, one of those vaccines was developed right here in Oxford in a building not at all far away from where, the one where you sit. Were you at all involved in conversations about how those trials were set up initially? Uh, no, I did. I, I did send a, a message to the, um, uh, uh, to the trial team uh, at one point, but, but I was told that somebody else was... was talking to the company and I don't think that the company wanted to take the risk. I'm, put, I'm putting quotes around taking the risk. Um, but obviously n nobody had the data that I was seeing about the, to be able to make that benefit risk um, uh, assessment. We've got very clear ethical guidance that, that predates the pandemic, for, planned for exactly this situation. Um, that, that quite clearly um, states that, you know, ethically we should not be denying pregnant women the potential to benefit when, when we're enabling it for other people. Um, and I don't, I don't want it to come across that I am in any way going to be forcing pregnant women to take part in clinical trials the position that I, I want to get to the position where we are at least offering pregnant women the choice to participate in a trial that, that may be to their benefit. Um, uh, and, and we do know that when we do enable pregnant women to, to take part, they, pregnant women will choose to take part. Um, and we did for recovery. So for recovery, we, we... So recovery, this was a trial of treatments in hospital. So this was a trial for treatments, yes. So, so obviously we knew pregnant women were getting very sick. Um, and, um, but so, we, so we enabled pregnant women to, to participate. And because we enabled pregnant women to participate, when the results of that trial came out, you could see pregnant women were included in this trial Therefore, we can include them in the guidance that you need to treat them with dexamethasone or, uh, in, in this case, steroids, but yeah. So, so I, again, it was a direct, you could see very quickly how the results of the trial were, were uh, adopted into guidance for treatment for pregnant women. And what was the consequence of their not having been included in the trials for vaccination? So um, I mentioned to you back at the beginning that one of, one of my roles is to um, count and investigate the care of all women who die in pregnancy. So um, obviously some women died during that, the, in 2020 when we didn't have a vaccine. Uh, more women, three times as many women died in 2021. In 2021 winter, where everybody was eligible for vaccination. And at almost, the end of 2021. At the end of 2021, yes. and almost exclusively, they were unvaccinated because the, the lack of evidence um, and the, the uh, a lot of, a lot of um, uh, what's the way to, you know, misinformation. talk about risk. <laughs> misinformation, yes. absolutely, misinformation. Uh, talking about risk, um, not not ever thinking about benefit, um, and and not even not even uh, no real conceptualization of what that 
potential risk that they were talking about might be uh, meant that that yeah the very high levels of hesitancy in 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 pregnancy and you know there were system barriers in place at the beginning which didn't help either in that again you know we uh, could all go to a mass vaccination center to get our vaccine but if you were pregnant you had to get extra signatures or they refused to to give you vaccine even though they were able to give you you know so they, they were there were challenges so it wasn't just the the women who were hesitant the the clinical system itself had hesitancy within it exactly. about treating them exactly yes yes yeah, yeah. And yeah. so it was left to individual clinicians, nurses, whoever, so, to decide so, whether it was safe or not. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It was. It was. Uh, um, and you, if you want to, you know, if you if you want to enable pregnant women to get vaccinated, you do it when they're going for a routine check. But because I mean, because of some of the issues around storage and things of the of the Pfizer vaccine in particular, they were only available in certain places. They didn't have them in hospital clinics, you know, short, uh, short shelf life out of the extreme deep freeze and that, that, that kind of thing. So, so th there were lots of barriers that made it harder, coupled with a lot of misinformation. Um, and again, you know, th there were, could have been other solutions. So we started talking about flu, you know, Pregnant women have been having flu vaccines, so there, there are there are old vaccine technologies that pregnant women have been been being vaccinated with with um, with vaccines for a long time. And you know we could have made sure that we were we were enabling one of the old vaccine technologies, so you know killed virus, for example, which we we would have no concerns over safety in pregnancy so that at least there was a, a vaccine that, that pregnant women could have had without any theoretical concerns over mRNA vaccines, um, which the, the, there are no real concerns over mRNA vaccines. Um, we obviously now have information about millions of women who have been vaccinated in pregnancy uh, with no concerns at all. Um, but even when we started vaccinating in the UK and pregnant women were being vaccinated, that information was not being collected. So again, we had a delay. Even when we were recommending the vaccine to pregnant women, we had a delay in, in enabling them to have information to make an informed choice. So um, all of these things I really just want to to make sure that they're not going to happen again. But there, there still are big delays to actually getting information out. Mm. Mm. And that, I mean, what can you say? Is that a, a system failure or can you point the finger at who was the, what was the, who um, was built, putting up the barriers or was... So, so clearly, I, I, I um, female I spend my life working on 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 pregnancy research I have three daughters so everything everything in my world life revolves around women pregnancy it's it's just a no-brainer that for me you have to be thinking about pregnant women um, I'm just not sure you know in in the those groups that were advising at the first time is was there anybody who even had that thinking I mm. suspect not mm. Mm. Um, and, uh, and the counter thought I mean the thought they were having as you suggested earlier was all around the threat of compensation if babies died and that kind of thing yeah 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 um, have so the lessons been learned well so we're about to go into a well pregnant women because I was counting so many dying last winter um, the JCVI changed their guidance and put pregnant women into a higher risk group. So they are now eligible for the booster doses. But I, I still am not clear that anybody will be collecting systematically and publishing in a timely manner information about women who've had the booster dose in pregnancy to be, be reassured that the booster dose is effective 
uh, and to give that reassuring information uh, about women for women who are getting immunised, um, and to counter all of the misinformation mm. that's on social media. Mm. Um, I'm not convinced that that's going to happen in a timely manner yet. I'm still hopeful, but I'm not convinced. Mm. Mm. I meant to do this in a different order, but never mind. <laughs> this is sort of slightly back to front. But what, um, what, why are pregnant women at heightened risk from the infection itself? Um, so a good question to which I'm not sure I can give you a, a, a straight answer because I don't, I don't kind of work at the lab level. But we do know that your immune system changes when you're pregnant because effectively you are... Uh, the baby is genetically different from you, so you have to become more immune tolerant. A, a bit like, you know, if you if you have a transplant, you have to you have to become be immunosuppressed so you don't reject the transplant. So we have there are immune changes in pregnancy, and obviously depending on which bits of your immune system are are tackling which infection, that that's whether that. The, the immune changes of pregnancy mean that you're effectively a little bit more immunosuppressed, therefore you might get um, uh, worse infection. Um, there are probably, you know, there's likely to be other genetic things in, involved that mean particular groups of pregnant women might be more at risk, but we don't know any mm. of those. And is that just a physiological thing about having a very large abdomen? Well, so, so, so <laughs> yes, I mean, there is, there's no doubt that, that severe COVID um, it was much worse in the, in the third trimester of pregnancy. So, so obviously the physical um, uh, lung capacity is part of an issue, partly an issue then. Um, but uh, yes, but, but yeah. That's not the sole explanation, but yeah. And and then there's the, the kind of social side of it. So how did the pandemic impact the experience of being a pregnant woman in society? Yeah. So again, when you look back and you think, well, why did nobody realise? So obviously the pandemic hit lockdown dramatic change in NHS services, you know, clinics stopped, everything went online, but hang and, and lots of, you know, surgeons who've been doing routine operations were pivoted to, to COVID care in, in whatever shape it took. But hang on, you know, pregnant women are, are still pregnant and will carry on giving birth. They'll carry on having the same complications. They will need the same level of care. And yet it was highly variable. In some places, they, they took, the, took away the, the consultant obstetricians to COVID care. In other places, it was the other way around. They kept the, the consultant obstetricians and took away the juniors, to, which at least meant that you were left with your experts. But the, you know, the, the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists had to intervene and say, look, don't take away the senior stuff, which you'd have thought was just common sense. But all of those, you know, so the, the other aspects to, to pregnant women, you know, the, the, the do we don't we shield. So they were, they were recommended to shield because we had no idea about whether it was going to be more severe in pregnancy. They couldn't take their partners with them to appointments. They, um, some of them, obviously more appointments had to be online. Um, but men that mental health-wise, big impacts on. I mean, mental health is a concern during and after pregnancy as it is, but hugely more potential impacts. And if you can't even have the support of a partner when you're uh, when you're going through various um, appointments, it's obviously going to make it even worse. And then, even when we began to come out of it, um, you know, pregnant women didn't know, well, should I still be shielding? What should I do now? Um, and then when uh, vaccination began to come in, it's like, well, do I get vaccinated? Don't I get vaccinated? And, it, and if I don't, do I then shield? And so it, very 
difficult messaging for uh, for pregnant women and a huge change in in their care and there's no doubt we saw some impacts of of more remote care um, particularly for for more vulnerable women or where language was was more of a problem because you, you can imagine having a, having a remote consultation where your English understanding is is okay but maybe but but not you know not 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 native speaking it, it can be it can be very easy to to nod through things and actually or not be able to express your concerns and some of those things which which would come out in a face-to-face -face consultation or with an interpreter um, so uh, there were there were undoubtedly uh, changes that that impacted on maternity care and um, what about birth itself? Were, were partners forbidden to attend during uh, birth? So partners were allowed to attend. In most places it was only when the woman was in established labour. So there were, uh, there were there's quite a lot of uh, people reporting their experiences of, of waiting in the car park, in the car, for when they were told that they could go in and partners missing the event because they were still out in the car park, in the car. Um, and you know, labour starting, stop, you know, is that it, it's it's a bit uncertain as to you know when labour, when you're in established labour or not. So, and and that, I mean, particularly for your first birth, is an incredibly uncertain time um, for you as a woman, and 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 to be completely unsupported at that time makes it really so hard. So hard. And, and is that something you've been able to follow up? So, so um, there, there are, there's quite a number of studies that have, have picked up on women's experiences, not, not that, that I've done. Mm. Um, and there are obviously um, work looking at whether there were changes in outcomes um, uh, over the pandemic. I, the mental health in particular is a, 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 a big concern to me, so I know that, that there, there, there definitely been um, changes in, in mental health that, that were very negative. But, yeah. and, and what I noticed you've got a study just, uh, well, there was a paper about the protocol for the study, so I don't know how far you've got with it yet, but looking out to, to two years, uh, the babies when they get to two years old, yep. uh, uh, whether or not there's any effect of the mother having been infected. Yes, so yeah, it's, 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 you've, you've, you've basically described it. Um, so you know, we uh, we we are um, looking at um, babies and mums who've been infected, but also babies and mums who haven't been infected. Uh, to see whether there's any changes in their developmental outcomes at, at, at two years, because we we simply don't know. Mm, so what, that's a completely open question yeah, at the moment. Exactly. Yes. 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 Yeah. yeah. Um, and interestingly, one of the one of the challenges that's always thrown back by the 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 uh, misinformation um, brigade on on when you're talking about vaccine, well, what's the long term outcomes of the baby? Well, you know we can't answer that because we're only two years from the beginning of the pandemic and only a year and a half from, from when we first started giving vaccines. So, so it's an immediate way of um, being able to just put you on the back foot because you can't answer that. But Though I suppose what you can always say is that you do know that the outcomes of babies whose mums were not vaccinated and who got severely ill with COVID exactly. are pretty bad. They're very bad, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Mm. So, um, did did you? I mean, how supported did you feel by your research community? I mean, clearly you, there have been differences between people within um, the, the field in which you work and other areas of medicine. Um, but was there a sense of a community uh, pulling together and in, in the subject that you're? Oh, oh, very definitely. I mean, yeah. I mentioned earlier the, the the network of of research midwives and the uh, the the reporting clinicians for UCOS, none of whom were paid 
to 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 uh, collect the information that they did was 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 incredible. So absolutely, within the pregnancy care community, huge huge um, support for because they recognised the the need for and the importance of the of the information for for them and for women. Um, so, so really, uh, um, absolutely amazing. Mm, um, mm. And yeah. what about internationally? I mean, you you do have international links. Yeah. So, mm. so we have an international collaboration of of countries who have systems similar to 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 um, the UK obstetric surveillance system, and actually they adopted a similar um, protocol, and and data were collected across. Several of the European countries as well, um, and and in fact now the um, the the W the WHO are trying to also um, put in place something that means we're not going to be here. Uh, it, it, the the data collection will be enabled across a range of low and middle income country settings in the event of another pandemic and, and have been using um, the UK obstetric surveillance system as a model to, to think about what we should set in place now mm. uh, for the future. So, um, it, you know, again, satisfaction is the wrong word, but, but I, 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 I certainly feel that by, by at least doing, doing my small bit but showing what might work and, and the, the fact that it could then be adopted globally is, is yeah. Very mm, mm. And the pandemic, I mean, it's a sort of silver lining story, isn't it? And obviously the pandemic was awful, but if it puts in place something that could be beneficial with other diseases and other conditions, yeah. then that's yeah. at least something to... And I, I will absolutely continue to advocate for, for pregnant women. So if, if nothing, you know, if, if we can actually change the conversation and let's let's think about benefits as well as risks when we're talking about any research question or let's just make sure we're collecting the data so so like you say that there are there are definite silver linings that 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 we can hopefully um yeah ensure are um, put in place for next time mm. so so the last part of this, I just want to ask you about how the pandemic and what went on in the pandemic impacted on you personally. Um, yes, yeah, so how did the, I mean, first of all, there was lockdown. How, how, how did that impact on what you were able to do? What, what was your setup? So, so well, it, it, was, it was fascinating. Uh, well, fascinating one, how I, I was frantically busy, the busiest I've ever been in my life within the four walls of study. Um, I, as I think I said to you, I've got three daughters, two of whom were at university, but obviously were the university shut, so they were, so we were, we were all locked in at home. And the um, youngest one was still at school, was she? And the youngest was still at school. Yes. Yeah. yeah, so the youngest was doing A-level, uh, doing, well, in the sixth form. So yes, yeah, so we were we were we were all locked in, and uh, you know all of those from from the the kids about you know missing these these university experiences they will never have again, and so so obviously having to be a mum as well, and and try and support them in the in what was a particularly challenging time for them. Um, you may have seen in a, an opinion piece. So I think I said to you, I have the the study was activated on the Friday the eighteenth, uh, or was Friday the nineteenth? Can't remember. Anyway, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, the Sunday, my dad was admitted to hospital <gasps> with COVID. We opened the study on the Monday. Uh, he died two weeks later in hospital. Couldn't go and see him. So very personal, and and yet, I almost felt for him. I had to keep going to get the information out. So sorry, I'm going to get a bit too. No, tough. no, I'm not surprised. Um, that sounds extraordinarily tough. Um, and did you yourself feel personally threatened by no. the possibility of catching the virus? I, I was never really particularly worried about. You know, I'm youngish, relatively fit, female, 
um, I kind of assumed if I got COVID, I would be okay. I volunteered for one of the trials, so I was a, a participant in one of the trials. Um, Do you know whether you... I was you in the placebo know. group. You were in the placebo group, yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, but, but no, I was not particularly worried. I'm, I'm, I stick to the rules, I'm not, so we, we stuck to the rules. You know, there were, again, there were some, you know, nice family experiences that you would never, so we would all, every morning, all five of us would do some exercises in the back garden, you know, so there were, there were some family experiences we wouldn't otherwise have had, so you've got to, you've got to look positively on the, on those kind of things, but, um, yeah, so, so it, it was, it was the, the challenge of, of having to do so much um, oneself in, in yeah, it, 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 it just was bizarre being frantically busy, sat in a chair in a, in a very small room. Um, we had to do a bit of rearranging so that the conservatory became my husband's office and then the children were, uh, we had to yeah, rearrange to make sure there were places where they could work, but yeah. And do you think, I think you've already answered this really, but do you think that the fact that you were working on something that was so important helped to support your own well-being through those difficult times? Yeah, I, th I think you're right. Um, uh, and, and actually, I, 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 so I did feel valued because there's no doubt and um, in uh, interacting directly with, with people like Eddie Morris, who was the president of the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists. And so knowing that the information that, that I was collating, analysing, was going directly to make a difference, um, it does. It, it, as you say, it, it motivates you to keep going. And um, yeah, you don't, you don't have time to think or worry particularly. Mm. Mm. So. And what about your wider team? Did they, did they have pressures that you needed to take time to pay attention to, to help them keep going? I mean, it was challenging for the wider team. So um, uh, um, my programme manager was herself pregnant at the time. So, uh, and, and the um, uh, registrar I worked most closely with actually had, went through two pregnancies in the course of, of the pandemic. So, wow. <laughs> so for them, mm. you know, absolutely incredibly, um, you know, really close to, to the personal for them as well. Um, and, and again, you know, they, they worked so much over and above. Um, and, you know, within, within the unit here, we obviously had uh, clinical trials and, and other studies ongoing and, and people were working off their ironing boards and, you know, the, um, I mean, I have to say that the IT team in the the rapidly pivoting to try and get laptops to as many people as possible and, and, and set up all the remote access. They, they did do an amazing job to, to enable us all to keep going. Um, so, yeah. And, well, and did you feel satisfied with the way the university and, or the department or between them um, handled the um, meeting the regulations for, for not coming into work, not mixing at work, or, and, and when things began to reopen and so on. So, so I guess, um, uh, I mean, the, the, I was fortunate, I had a laptop, I already had sort of remote access anyway, so I was relatively able to, to, to get on with things. But, um, you know, and obviously the, department here was was leading the recovery trial as well so so I think that the support they were very well aware of people who had kind of critical positions um, but also kept it going for most other most other people as well um, and and recognized where there was a need for uh, you know there were there were people who whose home arrangements were really difficult to make, enable them to, to work. So we're, we're very good at putting in the, the protective um, 
you know, we've all been doing twice weekly testing and lots of protective aspects to uh, for people who had to come into the office or, or needed to come into the office. Um, I, in fact, ended up coming back to work into the in the office earlier than many people for my mental health, basically, because it was you know the the that 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 frantically busy within the same four walls never getting out was really I suppose yeah it, that was about must have been well that must have been about a year in yeah so after after about a year I, I just I needed to come back into into the office um, but felt very safe mm. when I was here I was mm. cycling so it's mm. you know I wasn't having to sit on a bus or anything um, uh, but, and as a, as a department they certainly recognised you know where that there were challenges. I think now we're at a more difficult stage where uh, there are people who have enjoyed remote working and uh, there are definitely benefits you know there are there were meetings that we used to do in person that were uh, much better done remotely now um, and I think we're at a delicate balance between between coming back or coming back as we were before or a more flexible uh, stage and I, um, I think I think the jury's out departmentally as to whether whether we've hit the right balance yet um, but it's really it's impossible to to gauge at the moment when we're still you know well we know COVID cases are going up a bit at the moment and we're only really getting back into the business as usual kind of research mm. the NHS is still under strain mm. Mm. so um, I think I, I, I think it's a bit of watch this space mm. with it mm. and you I mean you still have some questions to answer to ask about COVID like the, the uh, new, well, new study uh, uh, yes exactly um, mm. and and we will have for some while to come yeah you know, there will, there will exactly mm. there will still be boosters uh, you know I mean sorry there will still be variants and you know will we will we will will it as most people seem to think go turn into a, a flu being you know it it being a winter uh, a winter kind of disease a bit like flu hmm. yeah so has the experience changed your attitude or your approach to your work and how would you like to see things change in the future um so it's definitely made me more um, outspoken. Um, people will laugh when they hear me say this, but I, I'm, I'm not. I'm not a terribly outspoken person usually, but some of what is still happening uh, in terms of exclusion of pregnant women is just so wrong I am getting more and more vocal I think people probably think I'm now just a, that's all I ever talk about <laughs> do, you, do you use social media I didn't ask you um, so um, good question so I'm very I'm very um, I, I, I tend to use social media for disseminating things I don't I don't tend to um, express a lot of opinions on social media um, I uh, I've written two, two, two opinion articles for the BMJ where I uh, expressed some of it, but I don't, I, I don't tend to mouth off on social media. But, but I, I, I am, yeah, trying, trying to advocate in the forums where it's fora, where it's, um, where there might be an ear of, of relevant people in power. So. Mm. 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 And how sanguine are you that um, things might change as a result of the experience of the pandemic? I, I'm I'm worried that they they don't seem to be moving. We I mean we learnt so many lessons. You know I could, and I think there are many of us that could write down a list now of what we need to have in place, research wise, research platform wise, um, studies in hibernation for the next time. But that doesn't seem to be happening. I, I, and I'm not entirely sure why. I, possibly because everybody's still concentrating on getting back to normal. 
Um, and, and maybe we're not going to be rapidly going into that next pandemic. I mean, at one point, monkeypox looked like it might be, um, but that does seem to be settling down well. I mean, and fortunately, a, a vaccine that was um, off the shelf and readily available to, to help. Mm. Um, there's yeah. a new Pandemic Preparedness Institute. I wondered whether that might have a maternity strand in it. Good question, to which I don't know the answer. I know nothing at all about what's happening in the Pandemic Preparedness Institute. But many things at Oxford are totally opaque. <laughs> that is an 800-year-old institution. Yeah. Thank you very much.